0: Well, good morning and welcome to Logos. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist Church and have the privilege of leading you and preaching in this space. It is so good to be with you. If you're new with us today, thank you so much for choosing to worship with us. We never wanna take that for granted. And so if you would honor us by going to fbcsa.org connect, you can do that right now on your device. That's just a simple way to let us know that you worshiped with us today and that'll also give us an opportunity to make a connection with you um, later on this week. But we're so grateful that you were uh, with us today. I forgot to mention kiddos. How many of you have one of these? If you have one of these kiddos, raise your hands. If you need to get one, there's one in the back. And so let me encourage you that throughout um, my sermon time, I want you to listen. I want you to know that you're part of this too, that it really matters uh, to me that you can hear and understand the words that I say. And one of the ways that we wanna help you is offering this listening guide. So uh, you can, there's a lot of cool things in here. On on this page, you see all these words kinda scattered. Uh, I'm likely gonna say some of these words, and when I say them, you circle them. pretty cool idea. Um, At the end of the service, as much as you finish this, uh, we want you to bring it down and we will give you a little treasure. I think that's pretty cool. So listen with us this morning and we're just so thrilled, kiddos, that you're a part of our worship time. It's important uh, that you're a part of our worship time. Um, So we are in Job. This is Uh, This is week uh, six, right? I think this is week six. We're almost halfway through Job. We're in Job chapter nine. And most of us are familiar with a little bit of Job's story, but we know that he has experienced immeasurable suffering. I don't know of anyone that has experienced the degree of suffering which Job has experienced. He's lost all of his children, all of his possessions and most of his health he's on the brink of uh, of death he is in a tremendous spot of suffering and along the way job has had a lot to say right Um, He has a lot to say about his own suffering. He has complained to God about his suffering with questions as to why am I experiencing this suffering? Job could not think of something that he had done that was worthy of this kind of judgment against him or suffering that was coming from God. Remember, it was never a question in Job's mind where the suffering was coming from. All along the way, Job has said, God, you have done this to me, and he's followed that with significant complaints, significant questions to God about why this has happened to him. And of course, we know that the action of this poetry, this story of Job, is led by conversations between Job's friends and Job himself. And we have learned that Job's friends have been no help at all. Uh, They have provided him no comfort and solace in this dire, desperate moment, days, weeks, and perhaps months of incredible suffering. And just to give you an idea of the degree to which they are not comforting, all along the way, their tone gets more aggressive And more insistent that, Job, certainly you have done something wrong to deserve the kind of suffering that you've been receiving. But it doesn't get any worse than this. This is Job chapter 8, verse 4, where Bildad says, your children must have sinned against him so their punishment was well deserved. Who says that to a grieving parent? Your kid must have deserved it. Uh, This is where Job is. He's suffering at every angle, every side, and he has significant complaints, significant questions for God, and we get that. And then we find ourselves in Job chapter nine, verses one through 35, where Job begins to express his understanding of the principle in general that his friends are trying to articulate and get him to agree to. They want him just to confess his sin. And he has no inclination of what sin they're talking about. And even God has said he's blameless, remember? But in this chapter, he begins to talk about the nature of God, which leads him to some profound, astounding conclusions that are tremendously helpful for us, whether we're in the middle of suffering or not. So that's where I'm going today. Um, We're going to look how Job describes the nature of God. Um, We're going to look how Job describes his own nature in light of the nature of God. Uh, And then we're going to look at This foundational desire that undergirds a profound need that Job has. And that's those verses, 32 through 35, that has been our reverse passage for this week, if you've been reading along in reverse. And so as I've done for most weeks, rather than us reading together, I'm going to read to you Job chapter 9. Remember, this is poetry. It is intended to be heard. So if you need to close your eyes and just receive this, you can do that. But let me invite you to listen. So I'm gonna pray and then just receive God's word through listening to God's word. Father, this is indeed your word. And so Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Shape our thinking and give steps to our feet so that we might live according to your word. Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Yes, I know all this is true in principle, but how can a person be declared innocent in God's sight? If someone wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? For God is so wise and so mighty, who has ever challenged him successfully? Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea he made All the stars, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great things too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. Yet when he comes near, I cannot see him. When he moves by, I do not see him go. He snatches someone in death who can stop him. Who dares to ask, what are you doing? And God does not restrain his anger. Even the monsters of the sea are crushed beneath his feet. So who am I? So who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him and he responded, I'm not so sure he would listen to me. For he attacks me with a storm and repeatedly wounds me without cause. He will not let me catch my breath, but he fills me instead with bitter sorrows. If it's a question of strength, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who dares summon him to court? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Though I am blameless, it would prove me wicked. I am not, I am innocent, but it makes no difference to me. I despise my life. I... Innocent or wicked, it's all the same to God. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When the plague sweeps through, he laughs at the death of the innocent. The whole earth is in the hands of the wicked, and God blinds the eyes of the judges. If he's not the one who does it, who is? Who is? My life passes more swiftly than a runner. It flees away without a glimpse of happiness. It disappears like a swift papyrus boat, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. If I decided to forget my complaints, to put away my sad face and be cheerful, I would still dread all the pain, for I know you will not find me innocent, O God. Whatever happens, I will be found guilty. So what's the use of trying? Even if I were to wash myself with soap and clean my hands with lye, you would plunge me into a muddy ditch and my own filthy clothing would hate me. God is not a mortal like me. So I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear. But I cannot do that in my own strength. Huge props to Job. Huge props to Job. It seems that even in the midst of the kind of suffering that he faces, his view of God does not diminish, but it only increases. Is that what you saw here? In part, Job's view of God continues to increase, not diminish. And I think that is significant for us. Just... A few of these verses, beginning in verse four, for God is so wise and so mighty. Who has ever challenged him successfully? Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in anger. He shakes the earth from its place and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. Verse 10, he does great things, too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. If it's a question of strength, in verse 19, he's the strong one. Job's view of God does not get smaller in his suffering. His view of God increases. And I think that's huge because I don't know about you, I've never tasted suffering like some of the people I know that are suffering now or have in the past. And obviously, I've never even gotten close to the kind of suffering that Job has experienced, but I know my tendency is when I'm faced with something that's painful and hurts, that leads to frustration or anger, it's as if everything kind of shrinks, wraps around my suffering and my frustration and my anger. The world just kind of, closes in and my suffering, my frustration, whatever is taken away from me gets much bigger rather than smaller. And it's hard for me to see beyond what I'm facing. And that might be true for you, whether it's depression, frustration, suffering, literal pain and chronic pain. It could be any number of those things, but Aren't you the same way, possibly, that those things tend to get bigger, not smaller? But for Job, by the grace of God, his view of God gets bigger rather than smaller. And I think that's profound. The truth is we tend to lose perspective about what real life is like when God diminishes or gets smaller in our view. That's what the world has done, in fact. When we think of the ways and ideologies of the world, the world is now described those ways in the world because their view of God has gotten smaller, not larger. Less significant rather than more significant. In fact, the world now revolves around us, right? The ideologies and ways of the world makes man high center, right? We are the biggest things and the most important things in the universe. Everything should revolve around us. That's what happens when we diminish God and make ourselves much bigger, much less our own suffering. But not so with Job, God increases rather than decreases. It reminds me uh, after uh, John the Baptist met his cousin for the first time, what was his declaration? He must increase, I must decrease. And that's what's happening with Job right now. Right in the middle of his incredible suffering, God seems to loom larger and larger, bigger and bigger rather than diminishing in size. Pretty cool that that's happening in Job. One of the conclusions that Job comes to after declaring that kind of nature of God and his greatness and holiness, his majesty and his power, is that he begins to see himself for who he really is. Um, What does he say uh, in verse 20? Of chapter 9, he says, Though I am innocent, my own mouth would pronounce me guilty. Though I am blameless, it would prove me wicked. So remember, Job is convinced that he's done nothing wrong. There's nothing that he has done that would lead to that kind of judgment against him. He's been blameless. He has done what is right. He has sought after the Lord. And but see what he says here. Notice what he says. He says, If And again, Job is at this point just kind of imagining himself before God in this grand courtroom. If he was standing before the Lord, even though he was innocent, even though he had done nothing wrong, the moment he would open his mouth, he'd be found guilty. That's what's shaping his thinking. God is so mighty and so holy, so great and powerful beyond my imagination that if I were just to open my mouth, my own words would condemn me. I don't know if y'all have ever had this experience, but have you ever had the experience, maybe you were a teenager and you were in the kitchen at home and a little argument ensued between you and your parents and something flies out of your mouth and they give you the look like, do you know who you're talking to? Anyone ever experienced that before? It happens every so often, not often in our home. But you know, every so often, I'll be in the kitchen. Anna's in the kitchen. One of our girls is in the kitchen. And that one girl will say something and my head pops up like, oh, you probably shouldn't have said that. Do you know who you're talking to? This is what's going on here. This is is Job under the leadership of the spirit of God, proclaiming the beauty and holiness and power and might of God, he is so set apart that even if I were open up my mouth, he would say, do you know who you're talking to? And his own words would condemn him. He would prove to be wicked based upon his own words. He reminds me of um, Isaiah chapter six. Remember Isaiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord? he gets caught up in a vision and he's in the throne room of God and it's full of smoke and the robe of God and the seraphim are around the Lord proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And his reaction to beholding the power, might and holiness of God is to drop to his knees and he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. This is what's happening right here in his imagination of the grandeur and holiness of God, that even if he had the privilege of standing in God's holy courtroom, the moment he opened his mouth, he'd be condemned. His view of God is increasing so that he begins to see a proper view of himself, even in the midst of his undeserved suffering. Paul came to that same conclusion in Romans chapter 7. I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Woe is me. Who will cleanse me from this life of death and body of death? Job really gets to the heart of the matter between the joint and the morrow. This is what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wrote about the revelation of God, the word of God, that it, it, is, it is as sharp as a double-edged sword and it can divide between joint and marrow. And this is what is happening in Job's reflections about the nature of God in the midst of his suffering. It is getting to the heart of the issue that, G, that God is holy and mighty and I am not, that even when I speak, I will be found condemned so out of that Job comes to some profound realizations and that's where we come to Job chapter 9 verse 32 through 33 let me read that again God is not a mortal like me. He's just been saying all of that to us. God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that. But I cannot do that in my own strength. I don't know how Job came to this conclusion. Uh, I mean, we know. Uh, we know that all of Scripture is God-breathed. We know that the one who wrote this book under the leadership of the Spirit of God brought him to these kind of conclusions. But thinking about Job, the historical person, he, he wasn't thinking about Jesus Jesus was not in his thinking, but as he was thinking about the beauty and holiness of God and his own nature standing condemned by his very words before God, he came to this conclusion. He says... God is not mortal like me, so I can't argue with him or take him to trial if only there were a mediator between us. Now, now, Job is saying here very clearly that no mere mortal can be the mediator that I need because God's not a mortal like me. I can't go to God in trial. I can't come before him. And make my case. I've got to have someone immortal, someone other than the nature that I share to become my mediator. Job acknowledges that, that he needed someone other to step in between him and the Lord. He said, I need someone who can stand between us. This phrase at the end of 33, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, someone who could bring us together. Some of you are reading from a more word-to-word literal translation, which will say something like this, someone who can lay his hands on both of us. Is that what yours reads? Someone you can lay his hands on both of us. That's an image of someone, an arbiter, standing between the accused and the judge who has their hands in both worlds. Standing between the two. And Job says, I need someone like that that can bring us together. Someone not like me, someone not mortal like me, but someone other, someone that can stand between both worlds How did he conceive of such a person other than being led by the Spirit of God to do so? Uh, In in my marriage, um, Ann and I have given each other permission. It doesn't happen often, um, but we've given each other permission that when we're in conflict together, that she can call her best friend, Allison, and talk with Allison about what's going on. Um, Why do you think I gave her permission to do so? One, I think it's a valuable thing to be able to speak and work through conflict that you're experiencing with your spouse with someone you trust, a third party, a mediator. But I I, I say okay to Allison because I know Allison is for me, not against me. Uh, I know Allison is for our marriage, not against our marriage. I know Allison will press Anna and advocate for me if she says anything about me that is not true or harmful. In those cases, I trust Allison to be my arbiter for the both of us. And that's that's what Job is saying here. I need someone like that, that that's in both worlds, that loves us both, that I can entrust uh, entrust myself to, to be that go-between, that can advocate for me and also advocate for God. That real-life person. And whether he knows it or not, that real-life person in the flesh. I think it's remarkable that Job's increasing view of God leads him to draw the right conclusion about his need for a mediator, that need for someone other. In fact, he articulates it like this in verse 35. I cannot do that on my own strength. I need another. Pretty profound. So he's made these observations about the nature of God. It's led him to see himself more clearly, and it's brought him to that realization that I can't do this on my own strength. I have to have a mediator, that immortal one that can stand between us, hands on both of us and bring us back together. But undergirding that is a deep abiding desire for Job that I want us to notice here. In verse 35, it says, then I could speak to him, to God, without fear. Well, even before that in verse 34 The mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Job is saying, and then the suffering will stop. Job wants more than that. Job wants more than just the suffering to stop. He says, then I could speak to him without fear. Job reveals his deepest desire and need. But there is something that it isn't These verses don't say, well, then I could get all the stuff that was taken from me returned. Uh, Then I could get all my health back. I could have all my family back. None of that is in these verses. In fact, in, in most of Job, although he bemoans his suffering, he never talks about his possessions. He never says, I wish I could just have it all back. I wish everything was just like it was. Can I just have my stuff? Can I have my wealth? Can I have my health? No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, I long for fellowship with God without fear. I want to be able to talk with my God without fear anymore. Job uh, grieves his lost friendship with God. The theologian Francis Anderson, who wrote uh, a great commentary on Job, says this. Job's concern from beginning to end is God, not his wealth or his health, but his life with God. It is because of that, because he seems to have lost that, that he is in such torment. Job, greeting his loss of God more than his loss of possessions and health and family is a profound lesson for us. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me say that those things aren't significant. Hugely significant. But what was undergirding, what was the foundation of Of Job's realization that he needed a mediator was not so that he could get his possessions back or his health back. It was, I want this restored. I want to be able to talk with you without fear. Can I remind you, you know these truths. Jesus is not a means to an end. Prosperity, success, you fill in the blank. Jesus is the end. Jesus is our greatest treasure, our greatest reward. That's why Paul would say things like, you know, everything I have, I just consider it rubbish compared to the surpassing value and knowing Jesus Christ. Our greatest treasure, even in the midst of insane suffering and our greatest need is fellowship with God. Uh, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through uh, 24. Remember, Jeremiah the prophet was speaking against the waywardness of Israel. They had wandered after other gods, to go through the motions, they do church. Um, but God condemned them because he was not their greatest treasure. They did not seek to know him or to love him or obey him. They just loved other things. But I want you to listen to these verses. This is Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. Listen, um, the Father wants his people to know his blessing, but what, they want, what he wants for them to know most of all is himself. And that's not just true of Israel. That's true of us, listen, you don't want a pastor who, whose view of God is diminishing. You want a pastor whose view of God is increasing. We don't want a church whose view of God is diminishing. If that's the case, we're just gonna live for ourselves, more buildings, more stuff, and look at us, and look at what we have accomplished. But the moment our view of God begins to increase and we value the treasure of Jesus more than the stuff that he provides, that's when we get on mission to God and with God. The primary reason we struggle in obeying God is because we have no fear of God, because he's small. He's small. Gosh, I, my view of God needs to increase. How about yours? And Job arrived at this in the midst of incredible, extraordinary suffering. I don't want to get there through that way. We have the very word of God. We have one another in whom the spirit of god resides may our view of god increase and not diminish let's pray father we're grateful for your word uh, lord we need it you gave us your word that we might see and know you and the one whom you sent jesus may our view of you only increase So that we can treasure and value you above all else and give our life away to your kingdom and to loving one another and blessing the hurting. May you loom large. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.